Good morning, church family. And happy Mother's Day, as we've said, hopefully a few times enough for you to hear that along with us. If you don't know me, my name's Thomas Gold. I've had uh, the privilege of beginning my ministry career here back in 1999, long ago. Uh, I mentioned 1999 because one of my children uh, thinks it's absolutely hilarious anytime we mention anything that we did back in the 19s. Uh, uh, there is a distinct, <laughs> you are so old, you guys, you mom and dad are so old. And uh, so yes, my wife and I were married just down the hall in this building in the ancient years, uh, 1998. We were married here and then I jumped on staff in 1999. My first 10 years of church ministry was here at Friendship Church as um, you were uh, the family that helped me grow up and mature in uh, lots of different ways. And so uh, after those 10 years, I went on to another 10 years of ministry at a couple of different churches, and now the Lord has us here. Um, I'm working outside the church, but part of the Friendship Church family and just receiving lots of blessings, lots of great relationships from short-term and long-term. And so thank you uh, for the camaraderie, and uh, some of you are here who were my Sunday school teachers in this very building. Thank you for your faithfulness to me and to my family. Uh, Pastor Matt asked me to come and help us kick off this series today called The First Five. We're going to look at this uh, challenging sermon series, challenging in the sense that we are going to take the next five weeks to look at the first five books of the Bible, which means we are going to cover an entire book of the Bible every week the next five Sundays. And I have this super simple task of covering the book of Genesis this morning. Uh, not much that goes on in the book of Genesis, so this should be extremely easy. I've, it's been suggested twice this morning already that I should do a part A in this first service and invite you to stay around after the intermission for part B. We'll see how, the, uh, how, how much progress we can make together on this. Jewish, uh, Jewish folks call the first five books of the Bible the Torah. Christians call the first five books of the Bible the Pentateuch, and we are going to examine them. And there's two, uh, two uh, key thoughts that I want to launch us into the series on. Uh, the first thought that we need to keep in mind is zoom, zoom, zoom. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Uh, most Sundays, the way that Pastor Matt or Pastor Kenny treat their Bible fantastically is a lot like how my wife and I go um, when we research a vacation spot. We decide on the vacation spot that we're going to go to, and then we get in Google Maps and we zoom way in. You know, when we know the hotel that we're going to be staying at, uh, we zoom in and we need to locate three things by those hotels. Uh, we need to locate the nearest coffee shop because she will not survive a trip. Uh, she will not enjoy a trip without a coffee shop. I need to find a grocery store because I won't enjoy the trip without uh, quite a few groceries in the apartment with us. And then we need to find the Walgreens because snacks. Um, Walgreens has the snacks that we need. So we zoom in and we see, okay, how many blocks is it to the coffee shop and how many 
miles is it to the grocery store? And that's how we typically visit the Word of God on Sunday mornings here at Friendship Church. We pick a specific spot, right? And we zoom into that passage and we look at different words and different phrases. Well, we can't do that very well in these next five weeks. And so we're going to be zoom, zoom, zooming out. And you just need to keep that in mind. Your favorite story from Genesis might not get touched today. And your biggest questions about the book of Genesis probably aren't going to get touched today. We're going to be zooming way out and looking at, the, at what I've boiled down, hopefully wisely, the five uh, big themes that God wants us to see in the book of Genesis. So that's the first thought, how we're going to zoom out out rather than zoom in. The second thought as we dive into the series is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And uh, Jesus says this uh, about himself in Luke 24. This is the day after his resurrection. He, t- he is walking and he meets some of his disciples on the road to a place called Emmaus. They do not recognize him initially, but he explains as their eyes begin to become open and they realize who he is. He says this in Luke 24, 27, uh, or it says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus took their scriptures, their Jewish scriptures, which is our Old Testament, and he walked them through, beginning with Moses, who is the author of these first five books, and he explained how Moses and all the rest of the scriptures were all about him. And the whole rest of our Bible, uh, beginning from the first five books, points forward to Jesus, makes promises about Jesus, and then we see Jesus come on the scene and we begin to understand how he fulfills all the promises that God has made. This is what he says about himself a few times in the Gospels. These are all about me. And so as we look at these first five, we need to also keep Jesus in mind, and I will attempt to do that for us today. Now, huge challenge, important challenge, and I'm going to ask you to bow your head, and I'm going to give you maybe 20 Four seconds of silence if you're type A. That really made you nervous. Okay, I only have 24 seconds to pray around. But just a moment of quiet for you to say, God, whoa, we're going to be drinking from the fire hose. Please open my ears, open my soul, and help us to hear from you this morning. Would you pray for yourselves and for me that God would join us and move us? God, hear these prayers of your people and bless our time together. Amen. So here we go. 
Genesis, first page of your Bible, first words of your Bible, say it with me if you know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom! The Bible opens up with a massive, mighty God. The first theme that we come across in the very first words of the Bible is that God has massive power and God has exhaustive power. Not exhausting power, exhaustive power. God has all the power in all the universe to do all that he wants. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 3, God said, let there be light. Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and the waters separate up, and the waters separate down. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit. Verse 14, God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly up in the sky. Tweet, tweet, caw, caw. And God made everything. He made all of it by thinking it and by saying it. He has exhaustive power. The microscopic atom and the power within the atom he made. The force of gravity and the beauty of music he made. The soft hair on a baby bunny and the howl of the wolf. The fierce form of the Tyrannosaurus and the muscular form of a perfectly shot three-pointer. All that we have discovered in physics Everything on the periodic table and the pleasure of romance, God's power made it all. Everything that was made, he has made. We read in chapters 1 and 2 about the unlimited power of God to create and interact with the universe. And when I think about God's exhaustive power, I think about my son Mark. My son Mark, who has unlimited energy. We took this guy, we took our family to the Rocky Mountains last summer. And I said, today is going to be the hardest hike of the week. And we hiked up seven miles above the tree line. The rest of us are depleted in many ways. We hike back down. It's been hours. It's been 13 miles, 14 miles. We show back up at the little cabin that we were renting. And uh, the larger Children, the teenagers, 
the basketball players, we all collapse. Mark walks over, gets a drink of water. And he comes to me, he says, Dad, do you think we could go do something now? Can we go do something? Can we go do something? Like what? Like take a nap? Is that what you mean, Mark? You want to go take a nap? He's like, no, can we like go out and do something now? We've been back for five minutes. I think of Mark's power. We call Mark the Hulk with a smile because he just keeps going and going and going. And he's fantastic. And he reminds me about the exhaustive power of God, which in this case for me, a little exhausting. Uh, But God's power is massive. Now, let me give you one brief application on this, uh, this first point about God's power being exhaustive, you don't have to wonder anywhere else in your Bible about any miracle that God ever does, right? If you believe Genesis 1-1, you don't have to struggle ever with any miracle that God ever does. Could, Could God really open up the Red Sea for Moses and the Israelites? God put the Red Sea exactly where he wanted it out of thin air. He can do with the water. If he wants to push the water, he pushes the water. If, you are, if you're a Genesis 1-1 Christian, you don't, you don't need to struggle with any wonder. Could God really make a fish that could swallow a man and a man could survive in its belly for three? Could God make a fish? Right? Could God make a fish? He made the fish. He made all the fish. He could make a fish to swallow a man so a man could survive in there for three days. Could Jesus really feed a crowd of 5,000 people with a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread? Could Jesus really? Jesus invented wheat out of thin air. Of course he can break bread and... Some for you, and some for you, and we're going to be here a while, and some for you, and some for you. Of course he can. I just want to encourage you, you never need to stumble over any miracle you ever see in the scripture or any attack on miracles that anyone from outside the faith brings. If you are a Genesis 1-1 Christian, your case for your faith is settled. My God made it all. He can do as he wants to do with it. Let's connect this to Jesus. Is Jesus in Genesis 1-1? Is Jesus in Genesis 1-1? Well, read this with me, okay? Let's try to stay tracking together. Read this. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. Join me in this. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Is Jesus in Genesis 1-1? I'd say that he is all over it and he's still doing it today. That last phrase has been so reassuring uh, for me in different situations, facing different trials. Do you see the the verb in the last line is present tense? 
He upholds the universe by the word of his power. What does it mean if it's the word of his power? It means that it's intentional. It means that he's writing the story with his own hands and his own wisdom out of his own love and his own grace and his own holiness. Now, the exhaustive power of God. And that's really, really good news as we see, as we move forward into Genesis. The second great theme that we bump into is people are extraordinary. People are extraordinary. There was an anthropologist several years ago by the name of Desmond Morris. He wrote this, human beings are animals. They are sometimes monsters, sometimes magnificent, but always animals. I agree with him, sometimes we are monstrous. I agree with him, we are often magnificent. But we are never, never just animals because we alone, out of all of God's creation, have been made in his image. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our likeness after our Image And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth. God didn't give any creature, any animal, this kind of authority, this kind of ability, or this kind of image within their own being. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The other thing that Genesis 1 and 2 do for us are convey the beginning of human life and describe our incredible worth and our role in the earth. We, we here, each person, to the littlest person, the biggest person, the oldest person, the weirdest person, we are absolutely extraordinary. Extraordinary because we reflect God's intelligence, his creativity, his morality, his responsibility, his eternality, his capacity for relationships, his strength. We reflect the way that God uses his strength to work and to bless. We have that ability to work for good, expanding good across the earth. Or to say it another way, the wealth of the world is people. The wealth of the world is people. What is valuable in this world? I mean, we dig into the grounds for shiny little rocks. 
we drill into the ground for bubbling oil, but what is most valuable on this planet according to the scriptures? It is each person. It is you. It is the person who lives one house away from you. It's the person who lives one block away, one mile away, and one continent away. Every person is wealth, value, extraordinary worth. How do we live wealthy on earth? How do we live rich? If people are most valuable, how do we live rich lives? Being wealthy is valuing and enriching the lives of others like Jesus. This is how you live a rich life. And we even know this because those who die and are remembered most gladly are those who have done the most for other people. Those who leave the longest legacy are those whose lives have impacted the most people. Here's something I love about Jesus. Here's something I love about Jesus. As you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, all of the religious leaders who were focused more on using their life for themselves, those religious leaders made it a habit to distance themselves from uh, kids, from the poor, from the sick, from women, and from those stuck in sin. And as I read through the Gospels, you know who I see Jesus hanging out with? You know who I see Jesus coming close to and inviting close to himself? Kids, the poor, the sick, women, and those caught up in their sin. Jesus values people. I love the way I see this being reflected in my home among my children. I have a son who loves to watch their lives of others and say, what would be a perfect gift to put a smile on their face? Uh, on their face. That is living a wealthy life. I want to value this person by giving them something that would be, uh, a, bring joy to them. And then I have another son, and he is becoming famous around these parts of Minnesota for the kinds of hugs that he gives. Like, people know, you better watch out, because he's going to get you with this hug, and it's going to leave a mark, and it might be a physical one, all right? But he loves it, because he loves people. He treasures people, and when he hugs you, you know he's beginning to live a wealthy life. And I have a daughter who... When she's making food in the kitchen, she will often ask, can I make one of these for you? Can I make a sandwich for you? Can I get that for you? And she's thinking beyond her own belly. This is how we live wealthy. This is how Jesus lived wealthy. Living wealthy is valuing, enriching the lives of others like Jesus. I want to remind you today to treat people as if they're extraordinary. Because the first two pages of your Bible teaches you that they are extraordinary. Well, then we move in to the next theme. We hit the third theme in the book of Genesis, which is the P. 
perishing of those extraordinary people, the extensive perishing of those people. Genesis chapters 3 through 11 chart the spread of sin and death and God's first judgments against humanity's evil. Uh, I don't know if you've ever witnessed a gruesome sports injury. And I don't know if you're one of those weirdos that likes to watch it being replayed over and over and over. It's bad enough uh, to see it happen. Why do they have to keep showing it? I don't need to see the bone going where the bone isn't supposed to go 29 times over the last three minutes. But you know that feeling when you, when you watch it? You know that feeling in your, like... Uh, that uh, uh, uh. I hope he's okay but I'm not stop showing it if we understood Genesis 3 that's the feeling that we would get if we understood what was taking place the beauty of the garden and perfection and harmony between God and the man and the woman and their harmony with the earth and the soil, we would read Genesis 3 like, no, 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 no! And then as you read chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, it's like watching it over and over. No, why? No. Why? No. Why? And then we don't have to stay in Genesis. We can read through the rest of the Bible and we can watch our own choices and action. We're like, no, no, no. We find that our perishing is quite extensive. When Eve listens to the serpent's lies, Genesis 3 verse 6 says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. I think Eve's thinking was very much like our thinking. The way Eve got drew, drew, drawn into this thing and let herself get sucked in, it looked like it would be good for her body. It looked like it was going to bring her happiness, delight to the eyes. It looked like it was going to be wise. This seems like a good thing to do. Now we get scooped into a whole lot of our foolish mistakes. She said, if it's good for my body, if it will make me happy, and if it seems like it's the right way to go, then it doesn't matter what God said. If it appears to me that this is the right way, if it appears to me that this will make me happy, it doesn't matter what God said. Does that sound at all relevant? It does in my mirror. That brings, that choice, my way, not God's way, brings this extensive perishing. 
And what we read in the rest of Genesis 3 is that it damages the man and the woman. They are, uh, the, their relationship with the created earth is damaged. Their relationship with each other and with all future people is damaged. They start arguing and blaming each other. And then they have a son, uh, a first son, and he murders their second son. And relationships, people to people, are damaged. And then the relationship between them and God is severed. And that's how death enters the world. Our perishing is extensive if you flip over a couple of pages, Genesis 6, 5 describes what is going on in our infected DNA this way. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We don't have time to unpack. This would be a great verse to sit on for a whole sermon and see what does this mean and how extensive is the damage. But I think the verse is speaking quite clearly for itself. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. There is an extensive infection and perishing that takes place. Bananas? You guys are familiar with bananas? Not a trick question? Yeah, bananas. Okay. Have, have you ever forgot a banana? Or you, the banana like fell behind the bread or something and the banana sat so long that when you found the banana, you knew it was a banana, but it wasn't really a banana anymore and you tried to pick that banana up and there was some kind of slimy slurping underneath it and even the fruit flies that were coming around that banana were stuck in the banana tar underneath the banana and the, the, the banana was even toxic to the fruit flies. Now you'd say that's still a banana, right? That banana, I would say, has extensively perished. Still banana, not any kind of banana I want to be a part of, right? This is how scripture describes the fall. That we are stuck in a sticky slop that oozes out from us, right? It comes out of our heart. Our pride, our selfishness, our usness that says, not God's way, my way. And it keeps sticking us back again and again where we are. Unless something is done, unless something is done, the bananas will perish. The people will perish. And when we face physical death, then we come face to face with our creator. And if we face him in the fullness of our perishing sin, then we are separated from him for eternity to face the consequences of our sin in hell. Sin perishes the world and each life. But God, right? But God. Even there in Genesis 3, verse 15, as the sin, uh, the impact of sin is blazing forward and spreading out God makes a promise right away 
Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We have this mysterious promise, the proto-evangelion, the first mention of the gospel where God says, I will crush the head of sin, Satan, and death. Very mysterious. And we follow the storyline forward to find out what God meant. But here is the beginning of the good news. The first mention of the good news. Your sin extends into all your being. But it is not exhaustive. Extensive sin is not exhaustive hopelessness. It can't overpower the work that God can do. Amen? Amen. 1 Peter 2.24, read this with me. This is jumping all the way to the end of the story where we find out what God did do to deal with this extensive infection. Read this with me. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You are healed. That's the offer. That's the story. That's where the story goes. He hung to pay for your perishing so that new life from God could be mine and could be yours. And so we move from the perishing in Genesis next to God's promises. God's eternal promises. Chapters 12 through 50 chart the start of God's unbreakable guarantees to deliver humanity from sin's curses. We meet God's promise as the story of Genesis moves from the whole earth story down into a specific family, a specific man whom God chooses, a man named Abram. In Genesis 12, we read in the first few verses the promises that God begins to make that will bless the world. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that those so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Listen now, the last promise, it's the big one. It's the one that, in, that we all have an opportunity to be scooped up into. God says to Abram, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as you read through Genesis, God makes it clear to Abram, he uses the language, this is going to be an everlasting covenant. Then he comes to Abraham's son Isaac, and he makes the same promise. This is going to be an everlasting covenant. I'm going to be your God, and you are going to be my people. Your family is going to be my family. Your offspring are my offspring. And then Isaac's son, Jacob, God comes again and makes the same promise in Genesis 28. I will be your God, and you will be my people, and we are entering into an everlasting covenant that will bless the world. 
So we have God repeatedly using this language of offspring, family, my family. You will be your family. Your family will be my family. And we follow that all the way into the New Testament, into the book of Galatians. All of these promises that God made, and I wish we had tons more time to read each one of them and celebrate each one of them word for word. But God gives it to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to their children, which become the nation of Israel. And Galatians 3 brings out the flowering of the promise. Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Listen, listen. So that Jesus died, Jesus was cursed on the tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then again, Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the what? The promise. There's a lot of story between Abraham and Paul writing these words. There's a lot of story there. I'm going to leave that all to Pastor Kenny and Pastor Matt to fill in the next four weeks. There's a lot of story there. But the promise is, God says, I will make an eternal, everlasting promise to you. I will make a relationship with you where I do the work and you receive the blessing of being in my family for eternity. That's the blessing, that's the promise he made to Abraham and in Christ, that's the promise he makes to us. We all join Father Abraham's family and some of you want me to sing the VBS song right now and I'm not going to do that. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. The promise of God from thousands of years earlier. As you read through Genesis, you realize <clears throat> people's places change. They move all over. Abraham moves all over. His sons move all over. Places change, right? People help and people harm. People live and people die. Family life unfolds. Much of life is mundane. As you're reading through Genesis, this is what you see. Human life, human life, human life, human life. And as human life unfolds, all the evil, all the good, all the fears, all the fantastic, as all of life unfolds, God's covenant love and promises are firm. Always. 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 To his people. His promises lead us to the last theme that we'll look at today, which is God's providence, which is exact. What is God's providence? God's providence is how he uses, 
his exhaustive power to bring about exactly what he wants. That's God's providence. He uses his power to bring about exactly what he wants. And as you read through the book of Genesis, you see God bringing about what he wants. You see how on every page, in every story, he is steering lives, steering around people's activities, steering through people's decisions, always to bring about his great redemptive plan. This is fantastically encouraging because the people in Genesis are very peopleish. The people in Genesis are very peopleish. And so it's fantastically encouraging to us that God's plan doesn't depend on them. It doesn't depend on the people. The people were a disaster. People were a disaster. Extraordinary, extraordinary. And perishing in sin and making all kinds of foolish choices and all kinds of harmful choices. Jacob steals and connives from his own family. Abraham's nephew offers his two daughters to be raped so that he can protect a visitor, a stranger who has just come into his own house. The people are a wreck. The people are a wreck. And God's plan doesn't stop. His providence is exact. That's worth saying amen for. I mean, it's good news that God's providence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Genesis 12 through 50 convey that God's grace, not human effort or goodness, offers ultimate securities. Come on. None of the people, not Noah, not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not Joseph, none of them are chosen or used because they were so very good. Or because they did it so very right. They were secured into God's promises by believing God's promises. They were saved the same way that we are saved. We are not saved because we have done enough to impress God. They were saved because they believed what God said when he said it to them. And they said, I, I embrace that. They surrendered to him. They put their trust in him. Uh, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham put his trust in what God was doing, in what God was saying. And so it is God's grace through his promises and his providence that give them security and us security. You know when the ugliest moments in Genesis occur? When are the ugliest moments? The ugliest moments are when the people ignore God. The ugly moments, relationally, the ugliest choices are made when the people ignore or forget who God is or what he promised. 
As you read through Genesis, you find them slipping because momentary angst or momentary anger leads to them coming up with momentary solutions that fail to consider God's bigger picture. This is what leads them to their ugliest moments. And if I had to guess, I would guess that that might be the same for you. Your moments of worry, your moments of anger, your moments of fear, your moments of selfishness lead to moments of solutions that fail to consider God's bigger picture, God's bigger promises, God's bigger help, God's bigger wisdom. I wonder this morning if the Holy Spirit would put a finger on that and say, trust in my providence and my promises rather than in your own solutions. Trust in what I have said, what I have directed rather than in what feels right to you. Let me be the leader here. I have a little bit of experience. Let me have it. God works through Genesis with this exact providence. What a marvelous God. What a marvelous God of power. Marvelous God of promises. Marvelous God of providence. What a marvelous book the book of Genesis is and we didn't even get our pinky finger dipped in this morning. I want to close with a verse that I think include, a verse from the words of Jesus, the mouth of Jesus that includes all five of these themes we've seen in Genesis. I want to close with an encouraging, hopeful reminder from the mouth of Jesus. Read it with me one more time. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Do we see exhaustive power there? We see people there. We see perishing and trouble there. We see promise. And we see providence. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Let me be the leader here. Same God as was served and celebrated in the book of Genesis. We're going to close with a moment of prayer. I expect that the Holy Spirit said a lot of different things through my many words. So if you would just bow your head where you're at, have a moment with God talking to him, listening to him. What did he want you to hear this morning? Spend a moment with him.